Well, welcome everybody. You can uh, find your seats again if someone hasn't stolen them. This morning, we're going to start a new series. Um, we're going to start a new series in 2 Peter. 2 Peter. I don't know if you guys have read 2 Peter before or not. Uh, you didn't have much preempting for this series. Normally, we advertise a series for a few weeks to get you ready. But uh, we really didn't know what we were going to do in this period. And so um, I settled on 2 Peter. We'll be starting Deuteronomy in about five or six weeks. So you can still be reading through the book of Deuteronomy. Um, there's a lot of in that book. And so it will take you some time. But in the meantime, you can look through uh, 2 Peter. And the theme of 2 Peter is really simple. You'll find this phrase all the way through the book. The knowledge of. The knowledge of. It's like over and over and over and over again in the book of 2 Peter. He keeps saying, the knowledge of. The knowledge of. Now, let's be honest. We live in a culture where it's all about the knowledge of. Right? Like, we have IU. Right? In our backyard. Like, there are people that are paying Tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars to get knowledge. Some of them leveraging their entire futures on that that knowledge will pay off. And oftentimes it doesn't. And we have a lot of angry millennials right now and even some Gen Xers who are upset because the knowledge they thought they would get isn't paying off. The knowledge they were told would help them and get them ahead in life isn't getting them ahead. It's leaving them empty. It's not working. And they look at what they're trying to do to do just simple life, pay bills, those types of things. And they're looking and going, it's just not worth it. It, it. This makes no sense. And there's a real emptiness in it. And I think we're seeing kind of this highlight of knowledge, this increase of knowledge that's leaving us in a place where we're kind of questioning and going, if it's all about knowledge and we've got all this knowledge now, and what we're finding is people are just overwhelmed. They're not necessarily encouraged. They're not necessarily like, let's go after it. They're like, there's just too much to even know. So we find people just giving up, right? And that's why we see the rise of entertainment and the rise of cell phones and media and all those things is because it's our way to get away, right? To just play a mindless game, right? To, to do something where we don't have to think. I don't have to deal with things. I don't have to move forward. I don't have to ask the question, what's the knowledge of about? What do I do with it? What am I supposed to do with my life? And Second Peter addresses that. Peter is laying this out. He's writing to people who are, who are in the middle of a mess. They're being persecuted for their faith. They're being, they're, they're, their family members are being killed. They're wondering, is it worth it? They're wondering if the knowledge that I know about God now through his son that came to earth, is it worth it? And they're really asking these questions. And this morning, I want us to deal with two things that we'll find in 1 Peter 1, and it's this, privileged and promises, privileged and promises. Privileged is a word that we use a lot now, right? Like, you hear about white privilege, you hear about rich privilege, you hear about American privilege, like, privilege is a word that's been grabbed onto and used over and over again in our culture for us to try to have to deal with who are we and what are we supposed to do with who we are and what we know? And, and, and so we come up with this term. We came up with a term called privilege. Well, Peter uses that kind of word in the Greek. He uses that and he talks about the privileges that we have in the knowledge of God. And then he talks about in the first chapter the promises that we have. And let me tell you, the promises you claim will come from the privilege you think you have. Let me say that again. 
The promises you claim will come from the privilege you think you have. If you think that I'm so privileged to be American, then you will proclaim promises of American. You will proclaim the promises of American privilege. And you'll go out and you'll, you'll be a proponent of that and you'll fly the flag and you'll do those things because you believe that there's a promise there that, that, and a privilege that you have that you have to let people know about, these promises. And so that's why there's a lot of this talk of what are our expectations? What promises can we hold to? What are the privileges that we're supposed to have in a relationship with God? And what are we supposed to give up? These are real questions in our culture today. Let me dive in. First, 2 Peter 1, 1 says this. This was written by the Apostle Peter who walked with Jesus. He was a fisherman, then became a scholar. He was not a knowledgeable man by the training of the day. He was a knowledgeable man because of his willingness to submit to God. It says, Simon Peter, a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal privilege with ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I tell you this all the time, and I always remind you of this, because you need to be reminded that anytime you see this phrase in Scripture, Paul uses this kind of same phrase at the beginning of his letters, right? Peter uses it. We see James use it. Whenever you see this phrase, it's loaded, okay? What he's saying is, Simon is saying, I'm a slave. Wait a minute. I thought Jesus said that he came to set the captives free. Why would Peter call himself a slave if he has the privilege of freedom? Seems like an oxymoron to me. It's the way Paul refers to himself. It's the way that we see almost everyone in the New Testament who really truly knows about God and the mission that he has for them. They always refer to themselves as doulos, slave. Now, some of your versions of the Bible might translate that servant. We've cleaned that up, so to speak. In some versions, they say they're cleaning that up because the word slavery is so offensive in our culture. It was offensive back then, too. <laughs> the word slavery is offensive. It means something. It means you're not your own master. It means that you have a privilege that's going to cost you something. And that's why he says, I'm, I'm a slave, but I'm also an apostle, which means I've been sent out as God's slave to the world to tell them the message of who he is. And then he says, and I'm specifically a slave and an apostle to a person. It's not just to something. It's not just to some knowledge. It's not just something floating out there. I'm actually a slave and an apostle. And he says, Jesus Christ, remember what his name means. It means Yahweh who saves, who is the Messiah. This is the Old Testament Yahweh who sent his son to save, and his son is the Messiah. That's what that term means when Peter uses it. He's backloading the entire Old Testament right here. He says, I'm a slave to everything that Abraham was a slave to, that Moses was a slave to. It's the same God revealed to us in the person of his Savior, his son. Then he goes on and he says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal privilege with ours through the righteousness of our God, again, Yahweh and Savior, who is Yahweh saves, who is the Messiah. He is loading this. This is the story of all creation. This is the story of all of Scripture that he says. And he says, a faith obtained. Let me ask you, what do you place your faith in? 
Every day you're placing your faith in things. You are. Every day, and I've shared this before, how many of you inspected the chair you sat in when you got here today? I mean, yeah, Brian's over there saying he did because he set them up, right? No, I, no, I mean, did you truly make sure that, it, like, you know, the inspected by number nine was on the bottom of your, you know, chair like it is on your underwear when you open the pack, you know, inspected? Like, well, I'm so glad someone inspected these. I was, you know, I would hate to have a hole in them. Like, it has inspect, did you inspect it? No, you acted in faith. You said, well, this guy's sitting in it. He's bigger than I am. It'll hold me, right? Like, like you looked around and you exer- You said, well, I sat in it last week. Helped me last week. Probably helped me this week. You exercise faith in all of your decisions every day. You, you exercise faith that you're going to go home and your, your home's going to be there. That you didn't have a gas leak while you were gone and your home blew up, Right? Like every day is an act of faith and that we have a world that says, oh, that that faith stuff's baloney. No, understanding that the world operates by faith is a privilege because it humbles you. It doesn't make you a proud person. It makes you a very humble person because you begin to go through life. You begin to go walk through the world and instead of expecting everything, you understand that there's that chair may not hold me, but I'm going to exercise faith. I'm going to trust that chair. I'm going to trust this, trust. I'm going to trust people even though they seem to be pretty untrustworthy when we look at the world. People don't have a good track record. I don't know if you know that. They really don't. We've done some pretty evil, terrible things. But I'm still going to exercise trust because God says that there's a faith. And he says that we've obtained a faith of equal privilege. He says you're privileged to know him. Peter is saying, you are equal with me as a slave and an apostle. We have an equal faith. So many people that I run into don't believe that. They don't believe that they have a privilege and a promise the same as every person in Scripture did, as Peter, as Paul, as Moses, all the way back. They see themselves and say, I can't have that. And Peter starts his letter and he says, man, you are privileged to even be reading this. You are privileged to know something about faith and the world that most of the world longs for. They don't even know they're longing for it. And so then the question for us becomes, what do we do with this privilege that we have? Because isn't that the question our world's asking today? What am I supposed to do as a white male, middle-aged male with my privilege? So many people get offended by that question. Don't be offended. That's exactly what Peter's asking. Do you understand that you have a privilege to represent the God of the universe well in the way that he's created you, in the ethnos, the the ethnicity he created you, the the gender he created you? Because if you don't get that, what you're going to do is keep chasing Because you don't understand the privilege that you have and the way that he's created and made you for his purposes. So he goes on and he says this, may grace and peace be multiplied to you through, and here it is, the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Again, that's loaded. Yahweh, who is Yahweh saves, who is the master. He's in charge. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Can I just tell you that most of us don't want grace and peace? You say, well, yes, I do. No, 
You don't. I don't either. What I typically want is mercy and comfort, not grace and peace. See, grace is costly. Grace means somebody paid the price for me and I owe them my life. I don't want to owe anybody. I don't want to owe anybody. I want to be free. I just want mercy. When I screw up, you tell me, hey, you pay it off, you're good, you move on. We're good, right? I did my part, you did your part. Let's go our separate ways. We get our own lives. We get to do what we want. We're good. That's what we really want deep inside is mercy. We don't want grace. Because grace means we have to really deal with what someone did for us and our response to that. Grace means it's unmerited favor. I didn't deserve it. When Jesus Christ paid his price of his life for our life, and it was an equal trade, when he said, I will trade you, I will die in your place when you deserve to die spiritually, when he did that, that was grace. We didn't earn it. We're not worth it. He did it because he wanted to show us grace, not just mercy. And so many people want to keep God and keep everything at a distance just so they can get through life and try to be comfortable. And peace is different than comfort. Peace is something that's deeper. See, comfort is circumstantial. Peace goes deeper. It means no matter what you go through, and we looked at Psalm 23 last week, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Right? A little Elmer Fudd there. Um, and so literally, that's the issue. He says, look, it's about the knowledge of this God. If you don't know these things, you are going to settle. And it's going to be costly for you. You don't want to just settle for mercy and comfort. There's something better. There's grace and peace. There's peace to know. And listen, Peter is writing to people who are being slaughtered for their faith. They're being killed. There's no peace for them. They don't know if they're going to get up tomorrow and go to work and come home and their family's slaughtered. Their family doesn't know when they leave to go to work that day if they're going to come home because they might share the gospel with someone and not make it home. And Peter says, peace be on you. In this world, in the Roman Empire where we live, peace? Are you kidding me? Yeah, because it's the grace and peace that can only come from God in the midst of a world that demands so much of us. And then he says, it's multiplied to you. How do we have grace and peace multiplied in our lives? He tells us. It's through the knowledge of who God was in the Old Testament, who he came to be when he came to live on this earth and died, and what it's going to be like one day when we're, that's what he says, the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. That's where it comes from. Grace and peace is not this one-time decision. You don't walk the aisle, get grace and peace, and go live your life. You were probably looking for mercy and comfort. I walked the aisle three times growing up, trying to get, Mercy and comfort. It only took one time of someone explaining to me grace and peace that my life changed. Because I knew I was sinful. I knew I'd done things I was ashamed of and I knew I wasn't comfortable so I would go and I'd want mercy but I'd still want to keep my life. And God's like, that's not the deal that you make when you surrender to me. You say, I, I, I quit. I'm, I, I'm, you're mine. I'm yours. I, I'm done. And he says the knowledge, listen, there are all kinds of knowledges out there. We love knowledge. The word there, the, the root word is called gnosis in the Greek. There was an ancient false teaching called Gnosticism that came around. And Gnosticism believed that if you just knew enough, you could be saved. 
It was about knowing. And, and if you knew more than the next guy, then you would be more saved and have a higher position than they would. Can I just tell you that is the complete opposite teaching of Scripture? Scripture does not teach that it's about gnosis. Does it teach that we need knowledge? Yes. But it's deeper than that. And that's what he looks at. Next verse, Proverbs 1 said it this way in the Old Testament. Proverbs 1 said, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and discipline. Proverbs is the knowledge of book. So the knowledge of, that's the book of the Old Testament. Proverbs is that book that gives us kind of the most practical knowledge of God and people and the world we live in of any book of the Old Testament. I mean, it's just clear. Like you read through Proverbs and it's like, do that, do that, do that. I mean, it's like a list. There's no stories. There's just like, here's all the stuff. And we read through that and what you have to understand is that Proverbs starts the book and it ends the book, we'll see in a minute, with the fear of the Lord. If you don't have a fear of God, you know what you're going to do with the knowledge that you have? No matter how much you get, you know what you're going to use it for? You. And that's a problem because you're not God. And that's why when King Solomon, one of the wisest men to ever live, says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then he even clarifies it. He could have just left it there and said, do you fear God? Oh, yes, I'm afraid to death of God. That's why I keep going to the altar and repenting over and over again because I don't want him to send the lightning bolt and zap me and get me. And so I keep going back and saying, God, forgive me because I don't feel forgiven and I don't have grace and I don't have peace. And so I keep going. He could have stopped there, but he knew and he said, fools despise wisdom and discipline. Why do you keep coming back to the altar all the time? It's probably because you, you despise knowing what the right thing to do is and then doing it and realizing that it didn't pay off the way you thought and going, well, God's just teaching me how to be a, how to be a better person, how to be disciplined in my life because it always doesn't work out the way you want, right? How many of you started? Beginning of the year, you decided you were going to start a workout program. You lose some pounds, get in shape. How's that going? Yeah going real well, isn't it? Why? Because we despise discipline. <laughs> we know what's wise. How many of you have given up on exercise and you've went to Plexus Slim or something, right? I mean, we know what wise is. Don't eat more calories than you should. Burn, like burn more than you eat, right? Eat good stuff, exercise. And we're like, is there a pill? Is there a program? Is there some... Well, no, the, it's kind of simple. Get some people in your life to hold you accountable. How about you have someone grocery shop for you? You really want to lose some weight? Have someone else, pay someone else to grocery shop for you. Open your cabinets, be surprised, right? You will lose weight like nobody's business, right? And you'll probably hate them. You will. You'll be like, dude, you did not buy any honey buns. There are no honey buns. I love a honey bun every morning. I can burn that off if I run five miles in between my, you know, leaving for work. I'll do it. I'll run five miles on the treadmill, put some honey buns in there. And they're going, you're not going to run five miles before work. You're not going to do it. So I'm not putting honey buns in a cabinet. There's some lettuce in the fridge. You'll be good. Chew on it. All right. just... But see, we, we despise wisdom and discipline. I do too. Whenever Susan will look at me and she said, do, do you think you need that ice cream? My first response is not, I love you. Man, I'm, thanks for being concerned for my health and wanting me to live longer with you and spend time with you and go on more dates and just, man, that's, you are so kind. You know what my first response is? I'm a man. I bought this ice cream. I'm eating it. 
I'll deal with the consequences later. Because that's our hearts. Solomon knows this. He says, you've got to have some fear before you're actually going to do something different. You've got to understand the privilege that you are a slave. Who's in charge? And not be afraid like, oh my goodness, I can't talk to God. I can't be with God. But a reverence. A reverence that said, I do want God to stock my cabinets with what he wants, not what I want. I want God to be in control. I want to surrender more to him. I want his knowledge, not what I think is right. Solomon says that. He goes on, verse 3, Peter says, His divine power has been given us, has given us everything required for life and godliness, here it is again, through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these he's given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desires. He says, look, you can have divine power to live the life God wants you to live and be godly like he wants you to be godly. Can I just tell you that's not the power we want? I want the power of like liposuction, right? Like I eat what I want, I get big and I go, and I zap it, you know what I mean? I, I, I can do what I want and then I've got the power to alleviate the consequences of all those decisions I made in an instant. When God says, "That's I want you to live in those consequences so that you can help other people see that they can know me, that I can heal them, that I can work through the process of their life. He says, you have the divine power given to you. In other words, there's no excuse. You can live a godly life in Christ Jesus. You can live a godly life by seeking for the knowledge of God, by going to his word, by digging in, by staying. Like, it's possible. Is it difficult? Yep, because he said the world has evil desires. <laughs> yes, it's difficult. But he says you can do it. And he said he called you. Why did he call you? For his own glory and goodness. God is so glorious and so good. He looks at awful people like us and still says, I'm going to keep calling out to you because it's about my glory and my goodness that I want the world to see. It's not about you. And then he says, by these, he has given us very great and precious promises. In other words, he says, I've given you all these promises about what life can be like with me in Scripture. If you'll just embrace them, if you'll understand the privilege you have. And then he says, so that you may share in the divine nature and escape the corruption that's in the world because of its evil desire. You can get rid of sin. You can escape the corruption of your heart. He says, I want you to share in my nature. Here's the problem, though. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? I, Yahweh, examine the mind. I test the heart to give each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve. See, the problem that we have is that you and I know that we will twist our privilege and we will twist God's promises to what we want them to be, not what they really are. We know that. And so as a result, what we do is we begin to go to works. We, 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 we start doing works to try to earn God's favor and God's like, your actions you can't make up for. There's there no making up for this. 
Someone's got to pay the penalty. I'm a just God. I don't just let things slide. Somebody's got to pay the price. Who's it going to be, you or my son? And when we realize that Jesus paid that price for us, then what it does is it begins to change our heart from a wicked heart to realize that, man, if I just continue to let Jesus pay that penalty for me, to let him come in, then he begins to change my heart to want the things he wants, to recognize the privileges that he's given me, to interpret his promises properly instead of twisting his promises so they benefit me and they're not about his glory. And can I tell you that goes on all over the place today where we twist the promises of God. You realize that Jesus in the Beatitude promised three times that we would have persecution and suffering. Three times. He promises persecution and suffering. We are told anyone who wants to live a righteous life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might be, not could be, not if you do it wrong. No, you will be. It's a part of the game. You're going to put yourself in slavery to God and people are going to see that and go, I want nothing to do with that. And I don't even want to hear it because it's convicting and I don't want to deal with it. I'm looking for mercy. I don't want grace. He goes on and he says this. You see, we want divine power. We don't just want divine power. Do you want to know what we really want? We want divine authority. See, I don't want to just have God's power in my life to do what he calls me to do. I want God's power so that I can be the authority to make things happen the way I want them to happen. That's where the whole faith healing movement comes from, where people will smack people in the head, and if you just have enough faith, you can be healed. You realize there are people in Scripture who weren't healed, right? They died. You realize that you're probably going to die from something that you're not healed of, like a bad heart, like diabetes. I don't know what it is. Something's going to get you. You're not going to be healed from it. You're not going to like get sucked up on a chariot like Elijah and go to heaven. You're not going to be like sucked. That's not, probably not going to happen for you. It might. I don't know. But probably not. You're probably going to die of something that you weren't healed from. So was God not faithful? No. He says, I want you to share in the divine nature. You ready for this? What did the divine nature, Yahweh who saves, Jesus Christ the Messiah, do when he left heaven and came to earth? And he showed us what it looked like, you ready for this, to be a human and divine at the same time. What did his life look like? What did he do while he was here? Because that's what the divine nature looks like. The divine nature looks like Jesus Christ. That's who it looks like. So when he came to earth, Philippians tells us he gave up his privileges of being having the right to smite us and kill us. He he suspended those rights to say, I'm going to show you what privilege really looks like. You give up heaven so that you can bring heaven to others. And then you know they're going to crucify you. You know they're not going to say, yay, we're so happy you treat us so well and you're so kind and loving. When you don't give them what they want, when you don't give them the divine nature they thought they deserved, in other words, the, the Jews thought they were going to get all the power, kill all the Romans, build back the temple the way they wanted it, rule the world. And when you don't do that, you're, we're done with you. You don't have divine nature because divine nature would give us what we want. And they crucified him, which we're getting ready to talk about Next week in Passover and Easter. But he was crucified. Why? Because we couldn't stand his nature. You want to know why I know he couldn't stand his nature? Look at this. Genesis 2, 3, 2 says, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? It always starts with that. Is it really the knowledge of God? Did God really say? 
that you couldn't? Did, did he really? Isn't that where we start, right? Well, it's a cheat day, right? I just, and a cheat Tuesday, and a cheat Friday. I'll diet on Monday. <laughs> All other days are cheat days. Like, like th that's what he's saying. He's like, did, did God really say? Yeah, God really said. Like, if we would actually treat Scripture as like, wow, God really said this. He said, no, you won't die. That's the next thing he told him. There's no consequences. God will have mercy on you. It's no big deal. No, God's just. And it said, in fact, God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, the divine nature, knowing good and evil. The first lie Satan tells is what Peter's telling us, only Peter's not, getting, not twisting the truth. He's pointing us to it. Satan here is twisting it. And then he says, the woman saw the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining, what does it say? Knowledge, wisdom. I can be like God. We don't have to be slaves to him anymore. We don't have to listen to him. We don't have to submit to him. We can be him. And then it says, so she took some of the fruit and ate it. She gave it also some to her husband who was with her and he ate it after he saw she didn't die. What a, what a wonderful guy, right? I'm just going to wait and see if you're dead. No, you're not dead. Okay, I'll eat it now. It's literally what Adam did. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they what? Knew. See, they had never known fear before. They had never known not trusting God before. They had never known that they couldn't not trust God before. But when they sinned, they brought a DNA curse on humanity that now all of us know that we're far from God. It goes on, and it says this. The Lord said... Since man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. See, God and his incredible grace, when they deserved to be wiped out and start over, says this, you now have a bad genetic code. I don't want that genetic code to be passed down forever. So what I'm going to do is to send you out, and that genetic code is going to die, but if you would like to be born again, I can give you a new genetic code that won't be cursed like the old one. And he says, I'm not going to let you keep taking the tree of life, because if I do, I would not be a good judge. I would not be a good father. And not only that, but then the perpetual line forever of sin and death and destruction would last. So I have to separate myself from you, and I want to see your response. What will your response be when God says you're worthy of judgment? We find that their response was to have a child because God said that through your children, through a seed, I will save you. And so they were faithful to have children, believing that God would somehow save them through an eventual seed that would come, mankind, the God-man Jesus who came and paid the price. Peter then goes on to say this. He says, for this very reason, because of this privilege, because of these promises, because of the knowledge that God wants you to have, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. It's the plexus slim, right? <laughs> there's, there's diet and exercise, but you also need to, to recognize some supplements. There's some things you've got to supplement. It's not just good enough to say, I have faith. There's some things that are required of you that you need to be aware of. Hebrews 11 says this, Now faith is the reality of what's hoped for and the proof of what is not seen. 
For our ancestors won God's approval by it. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by God's command so that what has been seen has been made from things that are not visible. In other words, it's his knowledge, it's his word that brought creation into being. See, we have to make things with our hands. God does it. God just speaks, and it happens. He just speaks, and it occurs. That's what God can do in a moment. And he says, now faith, you ready for this, is the reality of what is hoped for. What you put your faith in is what you hope for. Many of you are putting your faith in an education. You're hoping to graduate. (laughs) What you put your faith in will show up. Your hope will show up. And you want to know when it shows up? When you get depressed and things start going downhill, it exposes what your hope was really in, right? When things are going great, you don't even ask what you're hoping in. You're like, I'm doing great, no problem. But the second those things start to teeter, all of a sudden you start asking questions like, what do I believe? What is life about? Is there more than this? Is there anything I can trust? Those are the questions that come out when the things we hope for begin to fail. And then it says, faith is the proof of what's not seen. If you only have faith in the things you see, you're going to be really disappointed because there's a whole world that we don't see. A whole world. You know, one of the craziest things, I was talking to somebody this week, I went to a talk on uh, Wednesday night on creation care and what God expects of us as the creator and caring for his world, even though we know it's broken, even though we know it's going to come to an end. What does it look like to live our lives in a way that cares for the things that God cares about? So I went to this, and as we were talking, and I was, I was looking at this, it's amazing to me how much we don't see and don't even realize affects us. I was talking to a guy who lives on a nature preserve in 1,200 acres in northern Indiana, and he was talking about how the top lake, which is called High Lake, he feeds his family out of that fish, or that fish out of that, that lake. That's how he feeds his family. He also does hunting. He says, but that's at the top of the water table. He said, we've run all the tests on the fish and all eat fish two lakes down. But when you get lakes four and five and beyond, I'm not letting my family eat the fish out of those ponds. We've tested them. And the levels of poison in those fish are awful. See, that poison's unseen if you don't test, if you don't inspect, if you don't run it through the test. See, that's what God does. We think we're doing well and everything's going fine. And we are poisoning ourselves constantly, all the time, and don't even realize it. With sin, with the way we treat our world, that's why there's an Old Testament. The Old Testament is really wise. It gives us some incredibly wise laws and commands, not because God's some killjoy, but because he actually knows what he's doing. He knows how to treat the environment. He knows how to take care of things. And we, are you ready for this? As a modern church, here's what we do. Man, I'm glad I don't have to deal with all that Old Testament stuff. Are you serious? Would would that be okay in your house? Like, your dad's trying to share stories of how he wants you to live, and he shares stories about his dad and his dad and... You know, great grandpa, and you're like, I really don't care about them. I'm just glad I got life, and you, like, feed me and give me a bed. I really don't give a rip. I'm just trusting in your grace, Dad. That's it. I I got nothing. He's probably going to be like, son, we're going to have a talking, right? This is not the way we're going to behave. You need to know where you came from, people that gave their lives. And it's the same way. There is so much unseen in our world. You realize we didn't even know there were germs until like 75 years ago. Like, do you realize that? We, at the turn of the century, 
Last century, the 1800s, so two centuries. At the turn of the century, the end of the 1800s, they thought they were coming to a place where knowledge was ending. You can go back and read books. They thought they were going to actually know everything. Like, it's obvious we're so smart, and the enlightenment, like, we're going to even. And then all of a sudden, this unseen germ world, genetic world, all this stuff, and it just keeps getting bigger. And we're like, what? I thought we were going to know some things, and it just seems like we, we know less than we did. And it's more complicated and more confused. Yeah. Because God is trying to get us to see how big and vast he is in his glory. And he's trying to call us to live simple lives in trust in him. You know, one of the things that's interesting about this is he said that in in verse 5, he says, for this very reason, here's how we do our faith supplements. He says, you need to supplement your faith with goodness. What's good? Don't, Don't answer that, just think. How do you know what's good? What if I think it's good that no one has a pinky finger? I mean, it really doesn't do much, right? I mean, the thumb's important because we got to use it for our cell phones, right? And the index finger's important to, like, pick our nose and push the button on the elevator. But, like, like what, what's a pinky? I just don't think we need that. I think it's good if we just cut everybody's pinky off because it's just pointless. Like, how are you to tell me that that's not good, Right? How are you to tell me that, well, that's not good. Why? I think it's good. Who says it's not good? Well, because you're, you're cutting something off and then it bleeds. We cut stuff off all the time to help people. We cut cancer out of them. We cut disease off. We, I mean, we do surgery all the time on people. Why, why can't we cut the appendix out and not the pinky? I don't understand. I just, oh, I like, just cut the pinky off. You see, we don't want to know what's good because then we're held accountable to it. That's why we have the Old, old Testament. It, it helps us understand how God is good. We're never going to measure up to it, which is why we need grace in Jesus. But that's the beauty of this. He says, supplement your faith with trying to know what's good. (laughs) Like, go to the Word and ask God, is this good? Is it not good? I want what's best. I want what you say is good. I don't just want my version of goodness. And then he says, once you do that, you're going to have to get more knowledge. (laughs) In other words... Because you're going to try to make up what's good for you, you need to go back and fear the Lord in his knowledge because the fear of the Lord begins with, that's where wisdom begins. So you're going to have to go back because you're going to make up good. You need to go back and ask God, is this really good? And get more knowledge. And then what's going to happen when you get knowledge? You're going to be tested. Am I going to control myself or am I going to say, well, I know that I have faith that I'm going to lose 10 pounds and I know it's good for me not to eat crappy food and I'm going to read some more books on what not to do, and I'm going to read books on what health is and what all the... I'm going to, I mean, I'm going to do my due diligence. Well, are you going to control yourself or not? I'm not real sure about that. I know a lot. Okay, well, that's not going to work. It's self-control. And then once you begin to learn how to control yourself and get other people involved in your life to learn self-control, he says, you're going to need endurance. Because you don't want to be self-controlled. Your body wants what it wants now because it feels good. And so you're going to need some people to help you endure it because you got to build different habits and there's endurance that you have to build. And then when you do endurance, guess what? You're going to have to figure out what truly godly is because you're not going to want to do what's good anymore. Because good's not paying off. It doesn't feel good. So you're going to have to actually go higher than good to go to God. 
and be like, God, who are you? Because I'm getting really weary doing this, and I want to be sure that I'm doing this for you, for your glory, for who you are in godliness. And then he says, godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Why? Because once you start to get godly, it is just a flip of a coin for you to become prideful. It's just a flip of a coin for you to say, look at how good I am. Look at what I've done. Look, I'm self-controlled. Look at how awesome I am. And he's like, hold on. You need to be sure that as you become more godly, you act like God did, which he left heaven to give his life for his brothers. Don't you go there. Jesus wasn't proud. He was humble. He humbled himself in the form of a slave, a doulos, on our behalf. And then he says, brotherly love will have affection. Do you say you have brother? Oh, I love them. I love them, God bless their soul. That is not brotherly love. That's not affectionate. <laughs> affection is affection. Like, man, I really feel for them. I'm not gonna let them keep doing this. I've gotta draw a line, but man, my, my heart breaks for them. I'm affectionate. See, that's God's heart when you read the scripture. That's why you're not dead, because God is actually affectionate. <laughs> he loves you and he's an affectionate towards you and he keeps pouring grace in your life. He's giving you more time. He goes on and he says this, 1 Corinthians 10, this is Paul speaking, says, Now I urge you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, again, a loaded name, Master, who is Yahweh, who saves, who is the Messiah, that all of you agree in what you say and that there should be no divisions among you and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. The power of God. Brotherly love and affection. You go from goodness to godliness to affection and love. And Paul says, I urge you, urge you, that there not be divisions among you. Really, because that's, that's not what our world looks like. We are the most divided world on the face of the planet right now. And it's all divided by what I think my should get, my promises, and what I think my privileges are. And we are divided by that. And here's what he says. You ready for this? This is going to be really convicting. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But it's God's power to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the knowledge, the wisdom of the wise, and will set aside the understanding of the experts. See, the cross makes no sense. So you're the God of the universe that can do everything. You're the smartest being ever to be created. And you come from heaven to earth and you live till you're 12 and like follow the Old Testament law, and then at age 12, you just go get a job, and you work with your dad till you're 30, and then like you go get baptized, and then you like die three years later, and then, oh, boy, that's the life I want. That's, that's what I've been looking at Twitter for, you know, the celebrities, that's, that's what I've, good life, yeah. Like, he says the message of the cross, you know what the message of the cross is? The message of the cross is you deserve to die for your sin, and I do too, and God died in our place. Now watch your response. That's the message, simple message of the cross. It's grace and peace. That God offers grace and peace and he doesn't want us to settle for anything less. The cross is the message that says if you want to be saved, this is how it works. And the world says no, that's not wise. You have to keep your life. You have to get more life. You have to use people to have more life. You can't give your life away. If you do that, there's nothing left for you. There's nothing left for your kids. There's nothing left. God says there is if you believe in resurrection. But if you don't believe in a resurrection, you're right, you're right. Just live to the wisdom of the age. Don't give your life. Don't give up your privileges. Don't, don't claim the promises that are hard. Only claim the ones that are easy. 
He goes on and he says, where's the philosopher? Where's the scholar? Where's the debater of this age? Well, they're at Indiana University. Anyway, um, hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolishness? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom. God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the message priest. For the Jews ask for a sign and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. It makes no sense that the God of the all-powerful God of the universe would would surrender heaven to come to earth, to live in a bodily form as a human being, to give his life, to be resurrected. Listen, if this is true, it's either true or we are the worst religion on the face of the planet because we get the least. Our religion doesn't give us much here. Matter of fact, it promises us nothing but probably pain and death here. So I can just encourage you, if you don't like this message, if you think this is foolishness, there's probably a better religion for you for this life now. For the desires that you have, the wants you have, but you'll pay a price according to scripture. And God does not want you to pay that price. And he wants to be an example that there is a world that's perishing that he loves. He goes on, he says, brothers, consider your calling. Not many are wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world. What is viewed as nothing to bring nothing what is viewed as something. So that no one can boast in his presence. But, as, but it is... From him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became God-given wisdom for us, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. What does that mean? He makes us right before him. He changes us so that we're more like him in sanctification. He sets us apart and he redeems us. He buys us back even when we make a mess of ourselves. And what does he say? In order that as it is written, the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. See, we love boasting, right, in our privileges and our promises. We love saying, look, I've obeyed all these promises and look what God's done for me. Versus saying, I've obeyed God and I can't wait for what he's going to do for me. Hasn't turned out well, but I can't wait for what he's gonna do when I get to heaven, when everything's made right. Because this is just temporary. This, this is just a body of death that I'm in. Peter says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge. There it is, the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. Here's the key. Here's the key to the knowledge of. We forget the cleansing of our past sins. We forget that, that we don't deserve to be forgiven, but that God does. We forget how much he's forgiven us and how much he's cared for us. And then as a result, we get prideful instead of being humble. And instead of preaching a message to people that you're a sinner like I am, you're a mess like I am, we both need the gospel today as much as we did yesterday. We begin to say, yeah, you need Jesus more than I do because I'm good. And what Peter's saying is he's like, man, don't be useless and unfruitful. Get this knowledge about who Jesus is. Proverbs at the end says this. At the end of Proverbs, it says, The fear of man is a snare, but the one who trusts in the Lord is protected. You know what the word there in the Hebrew means by protected? It means the one who trusts in the Lord will be lifted up. That is a loaded word. 
Who was lifted up on our behalf on a cross? Doesn't seem like protection, does it? I bet you Mary didn't feel like her son was being very protected as they drove nails through his hands and through his feet. I bet you John and the disciples didn't feel very protected when Jesus was lifted up on their behalf. And he says, the fear of man is a snare. Jesus didn't fear man. He didn't fear Pilate. He didn't fear the soldiers. He didn't fear anyone. He only feared his father, period. And he didn't want to disappoint him. He knew the plan was to die for us. And he said, I will do it because I know there's no other way for these people. And I'm going to lay down my life. And I don't care if they beat me. I don't care if they break my bones. I don't care what they do to me. I will do what my father says to do because I know he'll protect me. Then it looked like he wasn't protected. He was in a grave for three days. But there's this thing again called resurrection, the thing we hope for. He raised from the dead in bodily form. And it's that protection we can have. Verse 10 says, Therefore, brothers, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. In other words, God's calling out to people. The word election gets a bad rap in most circles. It means that God chooses who are his and we get to choose that we are God's. It's, it's a mess. It's, it's both and. and. Then he says, because if you do these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly supplied to you. He's like, just live as if you know where you're going. <laughs> That's what he says. Live as if you believe you're called. Live as if you believe you've been elected, that he loves you. Like, just live that way. And then he goes on, he says, Therefore, I will always remind you about these things, even though you know them and are established in the truth you have. Can I just tell you, I'm never going to stop reminding you of the simple message of Scripture. I'm not going to stop. I'm going to keep putting it back on Jesus, back on who he is, that there's a trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that we are a cursed people. We're going to die, and we need to make a decision about our eternal life. That's the scriptures. I've read enough of them. I've gone to Proverbs, Genesis, Jeremiah. I've gone everywhere this morning to show you this is the simple message that I'm going to continue to remind you. And if you believe that you're a slave, if you believe that God has saved you and you want to just give your life to him, he's going to call you to do these things because he wants other people to see his son. And we start looking a lot like his son when we do that. He says, I consider it right as long as I'm in this bodily tent, his body, to wake you up with a reminder. How many of you have heard the phrase woke up, right? You need to get woke, right? It's a phrase that's used all the time now, normally on social issues. You need to get woke to your privilege. You need to get woke to the promises that we have, right? You stole that from Peter, Okay. Peter says, you need to wake up with a reminder, knowing that I will soon lay aside my tent as our Lord Jesus Christ has also shown me, and I will make every effort that you may be able to recall these things at any time after my departure. He's writing them down. Why? Because he's making every effort to remind them of these things. We're still reading what Paul or Peter and Paul both said, I'm trying to help remind you. We're still reading it thousands of years later because it's like it's not that complicated. It's about him. He goes on, he says, For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Let me ask you, are you an eyewitness to the majesty of God? 
I am. Every time I open the scriptures, I'm amazed. Every time I read the scriptures, I'm in awe of if this is true, if there is a God like this, it makes no sense. It, it just either Christianity is true or I got to pick something else because all the rest of them are pretty similar. You work your way, you get, you know, do your best you can and, and God grades on a curve and hopefully you're better than the other guy that's in your religion. Christianity doesn't work that way. It's insane. It's either nuts or it's real. We don't trust in a great life here. We trust in a heaven, in a resurrection which allows us to live whatever we're called to live in here. That's the message. Are you woke? I mean, are you, have you woken up to this? It's a beautiful thing. And when you begin to see the privileges and the promises that you have in Christ, you know what you do? You do what Jesus did. You give them up. You lay them down. You say, God, they're yours. Because I know that when I die, I'm going to have everything. And I know there are people I'm living around that when they die, they're not going to have anything but judgment. So I'm willing to lay down anything and take up anything you ask me to take up and lay down. Because I'm, I'm so concerned about your glory and the people around me. That's why Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. They don't understand what they're doing. But this is what has to happen. And I'm willing to pay the price. Let me ask you this morning, have you made a decision to trust him? Have you made a decision to lay down your privilege, to quit claiming the promises you want, and to say, God, I'm ready to say, I'm privileged to even hear this message. I'm privileged to even know you, to be in a relationship with you is amazing, to have your grace and your peace. I am so privileged. Thank you. Now show me your promises, not the ones I want, but the ones you want me to cling to for my life. And if you will do that, God says he will come in. He will make his home with you and he will begin to work in your life. Will it be hard? Yeah. It's like being on a diet, right? First three words, letters of the diet are die. The last is a T. You know what that is? It's a cross. Die and a cross. That's a diet, right? I just made that up. But anyway, that's, that's what God calls us to do. Die to ourselves, pick up our cross, and believe that he's going to resurrect us. And if you believe that, you have incredible hope when you go through the mess today, tomorrow, the next week, because you're like, yeah, this life, it's going to bring death, but I'm ready. I'm so ready. And I just want people to know that. I want them to know my God. And like, I want to tell them like Peter did. I want them to know the promises and the, I want them to have the knowledge of this incredible God I know because he's just awesome.